are no longer slaves to sin. That is the beautiful outflow of the gospel. Hey, thanks for joining us here at the church at Suncoast. Take your Bibles and let's get into God's Word. So I begin this morning with two questions that I'm going to answer at the end of the sermon. They're not questions you think about every day, but I suppose if you're ever in a trivia contest, you'll have that arsenal in your back pocket. Does an ostrich really stick his head in the sand? And if he does, does he do it because he's confronting something that scares him and he just wants to ignore it? Stay with me. Don't fall asleep this morning and you'll find the answer to those questions that you've wondered all your life at the end of the sermon. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. I want to do a comprehensive uh, study of the parables found in chapter 13 because I think it's important when we're looking at the trees sometimes to step back and look at the, the woods, the whole thing as a whole. We get a grasp of what Jesus is trying to teach, I think, when we do that. Chapter 13 of Matthew was all done in one day, but it was done in two different, to two different groups. It's important to see who he was talking to on what particular parables, and then we get to understand what his whole message was that day, primarily to his disciples, but also to the crowds. Altogether, in this chapter, there are seven parables. The first four parables are given to the crowds, the masses, if you will, with his disciples around him, but basically to the crowds, the first four. The second three are given specifically in the house. In fact, if you look at chapter 13 with me, and you'll notice verse 36, there's a change here. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. So you have three parables given in the house, four out in the crowd, for a total of seven. Numbers are important in the Bible. Seven is God's number for completion. There are seven days in a week. This is a complete view of something split up between four and three. Four is the number for the earth. There are four seasons. There are four directions, north south, east, and west. It is God's number for a horizontal view of things. Three is a number for the trinity of God. Also, it's a number for unity within diversity. That's two. We'll stick with the first explanation. Three is God's number for himself. There are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is God's vertical viewpoint of a certain topic as the whole. So you have four given to the crowds, a horizontal view of a topic, same topic given and seen from a vertical standpoint. You have to have both of them, both horizontal and vertical. It is the topic <coughs> of the church, of the kingdom of heaven on earth. I have in my hands a book of uh, church history. John, would you go get me some water in a bottle? I'm fixing to cry and fall out right here. I can't grab my voice. Thank you. Uh, 
This is church history. This is a chart. This is the last 2,000 years. And from most viewpoints on a horizontal plane, church history is a mess. The church has been a mess for 2,000 years. It really has. We can stick our heads in the sand and think that the church has been something that it's not. But for the last 2,000 years, church history has been messy, real messy. It began back in the second or third century when heresies began to come in. And then in the third century, Constantine joined the Catholic Church in Rome to the state, creating Christendom, and what a mess that made. Through the Middle Ages, you might be interested to know that Christians were martyred by the Roman Catholic Church, by the hundreds, if not thousands. For believing what you and I believe today in this church, we would be drawn before an inquisition and possibly burned at a stake. The pagans killed us in the first through the third century. The church went after us in the Middle Ages, and the reformers at the beginning were no better. Do you know Zingli in, in Switzerland actually killed other reformers because they didn't agree with certain doctrines? And, and then you have the, the great awakening in our country and the church, and look at the church today. It's been a mess. Uh, is it really what Jesus designed when he started it? To ask yourself. A lot of times you're going to churches and it's a business feel. It's like a show and a production rather than a fellowship of believers around the Spirit of God. Jesus in his first four principles, his first four parables, explains it to us on a horizontal plane. The first parable, if you remember, of the four soils, how much of the soils actually produced any kind of fruit? 25%. Now, I take that parable to mean that all four seeds were sown in the soil. I take that parable to mean all four soils are believers. So if you look out of the church, how much of the church of true believers actually ever grows in grace and becomes spiritually fruitful? Maybe 25%. Okay, it's, it's today's our day of pulling our head out of the sand and looking at ministry like it really is. Now, I think the, high, the percentages are a lot higher in our church, but across the board, maybe 25%. There are people who were here last year who are not here today. Now, some of them have moved away. Some of them are sick. Some of them, for whatever reason, can't. But for let's not fool ourselves. For many, it's because of the cares of this world have pulled them out of the church, the fellowship. Or they got mad about something and left. About 25% actually take root in their spiritual fruit. Now, let me define spiritual fruit before we go on. It's not busyness and activity in the church. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. It's the, dispos it's the disposition that is Christ-like among us. I've known people for years that were intensely involved in the church. They were some of the meanest and most spiteful and vindictive people I've ever known. They stabbed you deeper and run the blood down your back quicker than most, even the lost. Amen? Yeah. Where I used to work at one of the post offices, there's a lot of this going on and a lot of knives being uh, stabbed in people so I took a t-shirt to make a point and cut a bunch of holes in the back and put red dye all over it 
and wore that t-shirt in. That can be said about the church, amen? Sometimes we get stabbed, only 25%. To make matters worse, Caleb encouraged us last week to let us know that among all the wheat, there are imitations, there are tares, okay? Sitting right next to you and don't look next to you, but might be an imitation Christian. Don't look next to you. Might be one that's playing the game and talking about it, but in, in, in Jesus' parable, he said, don't worry about that. Just minister to the flock. At the end of the age, I'll take care of that. We're not to weed that stuff out and go, that's, that's a true one. That's not, you probably get it all wrong if you tried to pick that stuff out. Welcome church history. So let's deal with the third and fourth because it doesn't get any better in the third and the fourth parable. I want to I skim ahead to, so you're not too discouraged, okay? This is a horizontal view of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Next week, we'll look at the vertical view because clergy and ministry people and church people get discouraged because they're looking at it from horizontal only. But Jesus doesn't want you to ignore the horizontal. He wants you to see it like it really, truly is. That's just the way it is, okay? Take a look at verse on chapter 13, look at verse 31. Now, parable 3 and 4 don't have an explanation like parables 1 and 2. There's no explanation from Jesus. So we, we have to be very careful how we interpret this. I'm of the mind with G. Campbell Morgan that all these parables fit together. And if Jesus explains something in another parable and that same element comes up, it probably means the same thing as the other parable, i.e. the birds. Remember the birds that came down and pecked the seed out? What did he say that was? He said that was the evil one coming. So in that parable, Jesus clearly says that the birds that pecked the seeds were evil. We're gonna birds are going to show up in parable 3. G. Campbell's, Morgan's point is, since they're interpreted as evil in first parable, probably evil in parable 3. So take a look at it in verse 31. And he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Notice one singular grain of mustard seed that a man took, one man, one seed, took and sowed in his field. Insignificant start, ignored. Notice verse 32. It is the smallest of seeds. Now just an interesting note, it was not the smallest of seeds of that day. Uh, he says this in a proverbial form because this was a proverb of the day. You know, skeptics say, well, it wasn't the smallest seed. Jesus, there was a common phrase when somebody wanted to talk about something that was small. Well, it's as small as a mustard seed. It's proverbial in nature. Just, just quick note. Verse 32. But when it is, has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Now here we get into some interesting territory because there are two schools of thought on this parable. And I'm going to give you both schools of thought and I'm going to tell you what I think it leads leaning toward. One school, and, and, and all this comes in because commentators and those who are historians and look at this, they can't even agree about what mustard seed plant we're talking about because there were several Okay, there was one that gave black seeds, there was one that gave white seeds, there were ones that grow to different levels, but rarely did any of these mustard seed plants 
grow to the level of a tree that could support birds. That's a point of one school of thought. Now, in any case, these mustard seed bushes were big. One fellow who went over there and saw it, he said they're as big as a horse and a rider together. So we're talking seven, eight feet tall. One school of thought says this, that this is the kingdom of God, this is the church that began, and it's just going to blow up into this huge thing that birds can rest in. Well, look out over the world as you see it. Do you see the church as this huge, massive thing that all the birds, all the, the evil of the world comes and flocks to if the, if the birds are evil? I don't see that. I see a very small camp of believers marching their way to Zion. You know, they say what, what is, how much of the world is actually Christian, maybe 7 8%, maybe more. Out of that percentage, you have to ask, who are the true believers, not just the church attenders? small group, not a big tree. That's why I believe with some of the older commentators, guys like G. Campbell Morgan, uh, Darby, William Kelly, Schofield, who believe that this particular plant he's talking about is a mustard seed plant that has grown beyond its bounds, bigger than it should be, different than it was designed. To give you a modern analogy, crepe myrtles are usually a certain size. Have you ever seen a crepe myrtle that just went nuts? And it looks like a, a tree. So they're always normally a certain size, but it's believed this must, mustard seed has gone beyond its boundaries, something bigger and more outwardly grander than God ever designed it to be. And look what happens. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. I believe this is the kingdom of heaven on this earth from a horizontal view of the church, that the church has gone beyond the bounds of the intimacy of a relationship with Jesus Christ to this grand, huge dynasty, this grand, huge organizational church, this grand, huge, massive structure of denominationalism, if you want to call it that, where we build huge, grand cathedrals with massive stained glass, with all this kind of political influence, all this kind of social influence, and got away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. This would go in line with the first two parables of what the church looks like today horizontally. Okay? Now, that's a little radical from what we've ever thought about it, but if the birds are the evil of parable one, we have the evil influences of the world seeped into a blown up, massive, outward, exterior structure of a church who has lost the gospel of Jesus Christ, mostly. Everybody encouraged? Everybody, you know, it's a big production. You know, everything has to come off perfectly. It's a show is what it is. You know, the televangelists and all the churches and, and just this, this, this the places that the church was never meant to go and be a part of merged with the world. All right, one last parable, verse 33. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. What is this? Three measures of flour. 
Leaven in the Bible is always a picture of sin. In fact, if it does not mean sin in this particular verse, it is the only place in the entire Bible. There are no other verses anywhere that say anything good about leaven. It is always the leaven of scribes and the Pharisees. Beware, Paul said to the Corinthians, a little leaven leaveneth the loaf. The, the loaf, meaning the sin was going on in the church. The rising agent of leaven always in the scripture, all through Old Testament is always sin. But in one particular way, uh, the first time we see three loaves mentioned is when Abraham entertained the angels. Remember the, the three guys that showed up at his tent before he was going to go down into Sodom and try you know, to plead and beg for his cousin or nephew? Sarah made three loaves without leaven, and they were brought to the three men without sin. This was a picture of Sarah's sacrifice of service. She ministered through those three loaves with no leaven in them. You know, you get to um, Egypt when God came down and rescued, they were to make bread with no leaven. It is part of the sacrificial system of the Levitical system to offer three loaves without leaven. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of the church and its teachings and how sin has entered into false doctrine and false teaching within the church itself. Jesus told his disciples, beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, which is their hypocrisy, their sacrifice of service that is filled with ulterior motives rather than service and sacrifice within his church that should be out of the love that Christ places within us. The church is filled with ulterior motives in the sacrifice and service. Are you even more depressed as we go on? You know, Jesus wasn't an optimist and he wasn't a pessimist. He was what's called a realist. He looked at the situation, what it was going to be like for 2,000 years, and he didn't want us to be caught unaware. He wanted us to see the church as it really was and not be discouraged by it, but that he knew that when humans are involved in an organization, it can go south and it can get ugly. And some of you have been in church situations that were horrible, where people went after each other with knives. Some of you have been in churches where false doctrine was taught, heresy was taught, or at best, bad teaching that didn't help you to grow. We've all been in settings within the church where sacrifice and service were not done for the cause of Christ, but to make somebody look good and to gain a position. There's a church I'm thinking of right now, can't keep a pastor because all the deacons run the church and they run off every preacher that comes to them. Where's the sacrifice and love of Christ in that? And it's not just the deacons, it's the preachers who, who are up there for their own good and their own glory and for their own pat on the back. Rather than being shepherds to the flock, they lord over the flock with their whatever. Last week I was walking down this, the side of the church. I don't recommend you ever walk down the side of the church, this over here with bare feet. There's sand spurs everywhere. And some of the kids realized that last night at the party. 
But I looked behind me, and, and Cooper wasn't walking anymore. He was standing still. And I said, what's wrong with you, man? And he sat down, and he held his back foot up in the air. He had a thorn in his paw, and he wasn't moving. Well, that's the church. We walk along, and we get a thorn. And then we limp along. Instead of doing the right thing, sitting down and holding our foot up in the air and letting Christ pull the thorn out. Walked over and pulled that little thorn out and he was fine. Stayed off the grass, he got in the road. We're not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I believe in what's called the universal church. Let me tell you what I mean by that. And when I say that, I'm a huge local church man. You know that. Any pastor who's not is in the wrong business. I believe in the local church where we flesh it out together as humans and, and, and believers in Christ. And where we stay here and where we work together and minister together and sometimes overcome the little bumps that happen because we bump into each other. and We just hang in there because of Christ. But within every church, there is a smaller church that are the true believers. Now, I'd like to believe in our church, it's 100%, but I'd be foolish if I believed that, that everybody's on a church roll is truly knows Christ as their Savior. They're just not. So let's be optimistic and say that the 98% of us, uh, let's, say, let's say just for this morning, the 100% of us truly know Christ. That's the, that's the true church. And if he were to, all right, let's just, let's just have fun and say 70% of us are truly Christians and know Christ as our Savior. Not just talking about it, we know him. If the rapture were to occur, 70% of us would fly up in the air and the other 30% would look around and go, uh-oh, oh no, we messed up. That is the true universal church within churches all over the world, all kinds of denominations, Methodists, Catholics, Lutheran, Presbyterian, all kinds of churches, there's elements of true believers who truly know Christ. That's the true church. So don't be discouraged by that. So, leave you with this. I'm going to leave you with three things and then I'm going to close it out by answering that question, okay? So, what I want you to take away from this is number one, Jesus anticipated church history. He anticipated it. It's okay. It's a, don't be discouraged. 25% of us grow. By the way, be in that 25%, because I think the percentages in our church are a lot higher than 25%. What business, could, what business could maintain itself over the years to have all the customers and only 25% of them actually buy anything? But the church, is not, the church is not maintained by our activity. It's by his life. It's, but 25% grow. He anticipated. Don't be discouraged by that. Don't be discouraged of how slow it's taking you to grow or somebody around you. We battle, you know what, we, we battle sin. We battle the devil. We battle the world. Now, he, he has the victory, but these are the things we're up against. And he's more than able, but you need to see it like it is. Number two, Jesus is engaging us in the historic struggle of the kingdom. I love that. Where will you be next year? Where will you be next year? Or two years from now, the struggle is real. Or as the little shirt that my granddaughter Addie has, the snuggle is also real. And number three, the truth triumphs in the end. Stay tuned and come back next week because there are three more parables that he doesn't tell the crowds. And once he gets you looking at the horizontal, he wants you to look at the complete picture of the vertical of what God is doing and why he's doing it and in the end, we win. Read the book if you want. At the end, we win. 
So, does an ostrich stick his head in the sand? Yes, he does. Does he stick his head in the sand because he's afraid of something or ignoring something? No. An ostrich digs a hole in the sand and buries the, his eggs, her eggs, in the sand. And every once in a while, she'll stick her head in that hole to check on her eggs. That's the truth, busting the myth. We in the church don't stick our heads in the sand ignoring the truth of the horizontal truth of the church, but we are to look into the hole and keep our eyes on the nest of the eggs of what God is doing, and in that we are never discouraged because that those eggs, our eggs, you bunch of big ostriches, those eggs will hatch out and victory and family, and life, and heaven will be ours. Lord Jesus, we pause and we thank you for an accurate view of the church and the kingdom of heaven and its growth, and sometimes, and many times, the twists and turns and messiness of the last 2,000 years. And in it all, the world mocks us, but we know the truth, that your life still is in the church. The gospel and message of salvation and hope are here with us this morning and in churches all over this world. And you're going to do what you're going to do. And may we keep our eyes on that and on you and on truth. I pray for everyone in here today. If they don't know Christ, that they call on you to save them. And may the percentages be more than one in four in this place for growing and producing the fruit of the Spirit of God. Pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us today at the Church at Suncoast. We pray that the message was a blessing to you. If we can be of any help, don't hesitate to contact the church on our Facebook page or at suncoastjacks.org. O-R-G. If you are in the listening area, we'd love to have you attend any of our services. We hope you have a great day, and we'll see you next time.